2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman. Thank you all for listening. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jeffrey Osler about his new book, Surviving Genocide Native Nations in the United States from the American Revolution to Bleeding Kansas, published by Yale University Press uh, in 2019. This is a really remarkable book that I look forward to discussing with our guest on today's show. Jeff Osler, welcome to the show. Jeff, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Jeff, for for inviting me. Um, Well, uh, I grew up in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and went to, uh, did my undergraduate work at the University of Utah uh, in English. Uh, I got a master's degree at the University of Oregon, uh, where I teach now, and then my PhD in history, University of Iowa
2: in 1990. Great. Thank you. And uh, how did you become interested in studying genocide?
1: Probably in uh, around the year 2000 or so, um, I was finishing a book uh, called uh, The Plain Sioux and U.S. Colonialism. that was published in 2004. And as I was thinking about uh, that book, it ends uh, with the Wounded Knee Massacre. fairly well-known event in 1890. And, um, you know, there was a question in my mind about whether uh, that event itself uh, qualified uh, as an act of genocide. Uh, I didn't directly address that in the book, uh, but it got me thinking, and I'd always been interested in this question about uh, the extent to which what happens uh, to Native Americans of uh, North America uh, is genocide. Uh, I'd always been interested in debates about that. Writing about the Wounded Knee Massacre uh, got me more interested in uh, thinking broadly uh, about this very question the question of genocide
2: uh, in American history. Great. So, uh, we'll definitely get into the book, but uh, what you said just made me think of something I saw in an article um, that you've published with Journal of Genocide Research. And you noted that. Uh, you were using Frank Chalk and Kurt Yonason's, uh definition of genocide. Does the definition we use have an impact on whether we recognize some of the indigenous genocides as such?
1: Yeah, I think it certainly does. Um, one of the things that I did uh, in the book was uh, I didn't really uh, start out with um, providing the reader with any particular definition of genocide. Um, people uh, may know, for example, of uh, Ben Madley's uh, book, An American Genocide, about what happens in California. And Ben, uh, I I think it's a very good book. I have no criticism of it. What Ben did is take the U.N. uh, definition of genocide, the well-known 1848 uh, U.N. convention definition, and sort of apply it as a template. I didn't, I didn't want to really do that. What I wanted to do uh, was to raise the question of genocide at various points along the way, um, invite the reader in as it were uh, to a discussion, um, rather than um, to set out a particular definition, uh, the UN definition, or uh, any other one uh, as a kind of template. Uh, and so, I wanted to sort of invite the reader in on it uh, as a discussion, and I do wind up arguing uh that genocide is certainly very much a part uh uh of the history that i'm writing about uh but but I do it in a somewhat different way i i don't know how effective that will be, but that
2: was the choice uh that I made Great. Thank you uh, and we'll definitely come back to that because I know that at in the at the end of your book, you talk about how uh, your ideas around um, sort of labeling uh, treatment of indigenous peoples how that evolved, but before we get to that, um, can you tell us how you came to write this book? This book in particular.
1: Uh, well, what a, uh, you know, as I say, I had become interested in the question of genocide uh, through uh, thinking about uh, the Wounded Knee massacre. Uh, but what I decided to do was to explore that question. You know, we've had um, in the last 30 or 40 years, just an enormous outpouring of work about the history of Native people uh, that eventually come under the United States. Uh, You know, the so-called new Indian history uh, arose in the 1980s. uh, And we've had, you know, we have shelves and shelves of wonderful books. Um. But what I thought was that what we don't have was a kind of uh, overview, as it were, a kind of comprehensive overview um, of, you know, uh, putting a lot of the work that we have together and then saying, let's create a comprehensive overview of what really was the impact on uh, Native American people uh, of Uh, U.S. expansion, if you will, or to put it uh, in in another way, uh, what was the impact of uh, settler colonialism? So that was what I tried to do uh, in this book, was to give uh, what we don't have uh, a comprehensive, I mean, it can't be completely comprehensive, but at least a somewhat
2: comprehensive overview. In in the way you just described your book, you referred to uh Native nations. And at the start of Surviving Genocide, you include a note on terminology. And terminology is seems, you know, especially important in terms of you know, the right way or most respectful or most um you know to refer to people the way they want to be referred. And so why is terminology is it why is it so important and why are some terms more prob- more problematic than others when referring to native nations?
1: Yeah. No, it's exactly right. I mean you want to uh, be respectful always of, um, what pe- people themselves, uh, wish, wish to be referred to as, uh, and it's complicated. Uh, in my book, I'm probably writing, uh, about uh, 40 or 50 native nations, uh, maybe more. Um, uh, and the terminologies for specific nations have changed. Um, a lot of native people, uh, got called names that, in in the early earlier period that were uh not correct i mean they were maybe imposed on them uh, by outsiders uh they were distorted in some way or another so a good example of this uh would be the winnebago nation uh and they you know for quite a while now um have gone on record as wanting uh, to be referred to as the Ho-Chunks. I mean, that's in their own language is is their name for themselves. So, you know, uh, I wrote about uh, when I wrote about them, I used uh, that term and there were many other
2: similar examples. Thank you. Um, so you know, beginning in the 16th century with your work and working forward to the mid to late 19th century, uh, while generally maintaining a linear timeline with some shifting, did you confront any challenges to covering such a vast history of events and ideas?
1: Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, the uh, The geography of the book uh, covers uh, mainly the eastern part of the United States, east of the Mississippi River, which is a big geography. And then because uh, I take up the the, uh, policy of Indian removal uh, that was enacted formally in 1830, and because Eastern nations were moved uh, west of the Mississippi, the geography also involves uh, a little bit uh, of the territory uh, west of the Mississippi. Uh, And so it's a huge geography. I mean, it's sort of half a continent. And uh, it did present uh, some real challenges. Um, One of the ways uh, that I tried to meet the challenge of being clear as I was moving around different parts of uh, the eastern uh, part of the continent, as I was moving around, uh, one of the things that uh, I felt that I needed to do was to provide the reader uh, with maps, uh, just you know, some people have a good sense of geography, others less so, but so they could follow as I was moving around. So I hope that works. Uh, Fortunately, the press was great about this. They wanted me to have maps. uh, And I think there's probably 2022 uh, maps uh, in the book. Uh, And so I'm hoping that that will help uh, readers sort of navigate Uh, what is a quite complicated geography? Uh, many nations, people moving around a lot, uh, and so on.
2: I I personally found the maps very helpful in sort of visualizing, yeah, the the geography of the um, you know, where you were um, working on. So, um, yeah, Yeah. thank you for including them.
1: Yeah,
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, It's Somewhat a related, somewhat related question to the last one. Uh, what were the major historical moments and turning points that shifted relations, whether improving or, you know, um, upsetting relations between colonists and and Native nations? Um, I mean, you highlight the proclamation of 1763. There's Independence, Northwest Ordinance, the Indian Removal Act, as well as many others. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how these sort of episodes shifted these relations?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Episodes that you mentioned, Jeff, um, uh, let me take up a couple of them. Um, one would be the proclamation of 1763. Uh, this is where, uh, the British empire uh, drew a line roughly at the crest of the Appalachians and prohibited settlement west of there. Um, you know, the British empire was never going to make that a permanent line, uh, Native people thought that it would be, and certainly thought that it should be, uh, but it certainly did have the effect of slowing down settlement, and it also had the effect uh, of um, making uh, speculation uh, in lands west of that line uncertain. So there are many, many people uh, well-known, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, who were speculating in lands in the west, and they title was uncertain uh, because of the proclamation uh, of 16, 1763. And I think really the significance of this, this isn't something that this isn't something that um, is new with me. I mean, I'm just drawing on uh, what a lot of scholars have pointed out. But this, I think, is quite important uh, for uh, understanding why uh, the colonists revolted uh, against Great Britain is that, um, you know, Great Britain was blocking what they sense ought to be their freedom uh, to have these lands. So, uh, you know, when I talk to my classes uh, and ask students, well, why is it the American Revolution occurred? Of course, people will immediately say taxation without representation. Certainly that's real. uh, But I also think a very important factor is, um, you know, the perception on the part of the colonists that they're entitled to Western lands and that the crown is blocking them uh so that's very important uh the 1763 proclamation its consequences uh the other uh turning point uh that uh i would highlight uh would be uh the indian removal act of 1830 um now uh that momentum for that had been building for a long time i mean one of the things i argue in the book is that uh, this policy in 1830 didn't just show up suddenly. It wasn't Andrew Jackson was president and pushed it forward, but it wasn't just Andrew Jackson's baby. Uh, other presidents had advocated for it. Um, they were preparing for it to happen. Um, it wasn't practical to start really moving the Eastern nations west uh, until around this time when it did pass uh, in 1830. Uh, and. You know, as I looked at the consequences of the Indian Removal Act, where there were uh, the removals of multiple communities um, over uh, several decades, and also uh, there were the removals of communities living west of the Mississippi River. Um, We very seldom think about them, but it wasn't an empty wilderness out there. Uh, There were indigenous people uh in the areas that they were going to you know force the eastern people into and so they had to remove or dispossess those nations and so as i looked at the consequences of that policy on the nations in the east uh and how successfully or unsuccessfully they were able to rebuild in the west after they were removed and also um, the impact of the policy on the nations in the West already um, What I was struck with was by how um, Really destructive this policy was and it's not like we don't know some of that I mean people know about the Cherokee Trail of Tears uh, And it's routinely mentioned, you know that four thousand or so with the 16 to 20,000 Cherokees moved West died those that's a staggering figure in itself but I don't think we have a full sense. And what I tried to convey, one of the things I tried to convey in the book is a full sense um, of the uh, massive destructiveness of this policy um, on Indian nations in the South, Native nations in the North, and also those um, uh, already West of the Mississippi.
2: In, maybe somewhat relatedly, uh, I'm not sure of the exact origin, but I was going to ask you if you had any input on... Uh, The cover image, Uh, you know, the art itself is beautiful. And it's at the same at the same time, it's very unsettling uh, because of what it um, depicts. Uh, Did you have any um, input on that?
1: Well, I did. You know, the uh, uh, you know, the press did ask me for some suggestions. And at first, I wasn't really sure Um, I had located uh, an image that I was going to use internally in the book. And at one point, it occurred to me that that might be a very good cover image. And the image, and the press then uh, got permission to use that image as the cover and designed a cover using that image. The image, I think, is very striking. Uh, It's a 1965 watercolor uh, by a Choctaw artist named Valjean Hessing. Um, And it's of the removal of the Choctaw Nation uh, out of Alabama. Uh, West into what becomes Oklahoma. Uh, And um, I I just think it's a very compelling image. I think it's one, it's an image about survival. I I think that, you know, uh, that's what Choctaws are having to do is they're moving West. There's the real possibility. And they sense this at the time uh, that they're moving into a land of death uh, and that they may, their nation may cease to exist. Uh and as they're moving west, I think that their challenge is, you know, to survive that, to overcome that. There's gonna be massive loss of life, there was, but one can see also the survival uh that the artist is is representing. So um so I'm glad you you appreciated the cover. Um I mean it if there's one good thing about the book, I think it's the cover. I really do like that. Uh Uh, that image uh, and was glad we were able
2: to use it. I like it too, Um, again, for both its beauty, but also the, you know, what it represents and the the depiction of the people. Um, And I do want to come back to this, uh, the importance of emphasizing um, resilience and survival of native nations, Um, but just taking uh, a step back to your research for a moment, um, what role did working with primary documents and the voices and the writings of native peoples play in shaping your research journey?
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, as I mentioned earlier, Jeff, uh, you know, the project uh, is a general overview, and it draws on uh, the work of many, many scholars. Uh, But I also, uh, you know, worked in uh, particularly published primary documents. Uh, I didn't really visit archives. It was impractical uh, to do that. Uh, but there's a you know huge archive of uh, primary sources uh, that one can fairly easily obtain, and there are a couple of things that I really saw in those primary sources that I tried to highlight. Uh, one of them was the many, many times in the historical record when leaders of Native nations. Um, Native confederacies that emerge that are trying to resist uh, U.S. settler colonialism. Um, Native people saying many, many times um, something to the effect of uh, the Americans or the colonists, uh, we know what they're up to. Uh, And what they want to do is they want to take our lands. uh, And in order to do that, they want to kill us all they want to extirpate us or they want to exterminate us uh, Mm -hmm. is often the language that comes out. These are translations of what people are saying, but it's very clear uh, in the record that that's what they're conveying. And so I came to term that uh, uh, an indigenous consciousness of genocide. And I think that uh, that's really in the sources quite consistently is that that's what uh, many native people You know, think the U.S. project is—is it is a fundamentally genocidal project? That that's what they're up against, and you know, then they're having to think about how, you know, to avoid that happening. So that's one of the things that I think comes through in the documents I worked with. Uh, And another thing that really comes through to me that I also tried to highlight is uh, as the U.S. policy of Indian removal is developing and being implemented, um, Native nations say many, many times to U.S. officials uh, through petitions, uh, through speeches, uh, and so on, many, many times they say essentially, don't do this to us, we will be damaged. Uh, And they will say, you know, you say that you're doing this for our own good. And that, of course, was the rhetoric by U.S. officials about Indian removal that it was necessary to do uh, in order to save, uh, quote, save Native people from an otherwise inevitable fate to disappear. You had to move them west. Uh, And, you know, Native people would be constantly saying, no, uh, uh, the only way for us to survive, uh, uh, if you really care about us. Uh, is to let us stay where we are, uh, and if you move us, um, it will be very destructive. And so they understood that, and, and they foresaw what, what in fact, did happen. Uh, and so I think that's a very important voice uh, to recognize. It's a voice that U.S. officials at the time completely ignored, uh, and to some extent historians sense have ignored it, Um, and, you know, I think that it really should be highlighted when we think about uh, the policy of Indian removal.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Um, You know, connected to this idea of saving them um, and this sort of benevolence of of, uh, U.S. officials, uh, you talk about, you know, the, quote-unquote, good-faith negotiations and offering Native nations quote-unquote reasonable terms uh, for their lands, um, and how these, you know, Establishing the good faith um, negotiations of, of the U.S. officials would then be used to uh, essentially justify, quote unquote, just and lawful wars when the native nations resisted, um, you know, selling or turning over land to, uh, to U.S. officials and to colonists. Um, can you talk a little bit about this? This is something I find really interesting in my own uh, interest in what I think is a shared relationship between war and genocide that goes beyond just sort of shared time and space and actually where the violence itself tends to bore lines. Uh, so could, you talk a little bit about these "quote uh, unquote" just and lawful wars and how they were justified by us officials.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, well, um, uh, here's, here's what I have to say about, um, uh, just and lawful wars. Um, the phrase, uh, comes from the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And as you and I'm sure many listeners know, uh, what the Northwest Ordinance did was um, set up a framework for admitting states uh, in the Northwest Territory. Uh, The states eventually admitted were uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Um, and um, the idea was that they would be admitted on an equal footing is what the Northwest Ordinance calls for, and it creates provisions for that. So uh, you know it's a I think fundamental settler colonial text is uh, uh, foundational to the us about how the us is going to organize these territories. Well, these are Indian lands that are going to be um, become territories and eventually states brought in the United States on an equal footing. Um, So uh, the Northwest Ordinance does have a clause in it uh, about Indians, and uh, it pledges the utmost good faith will always be shown to the Indians. And then it says that they will not be disturbed uh, except in just and lawful wars um, authorized by Congress is what the language says. Um, And, you know, historians haven't really looked at what just and lawful wars actually mean there. Um, historians will often quote the utmost good faith clause because it uh seems to show a kind of humanitarian intention that uh that a lot of historians like to highlight um you know coming out of uh the the uh revolution and in uh to the early republic uh But what I argue is that it, to understand what these clauses mean. Um, You have to really look at what's going on on the ground. And so, you know, the United States is trying to take the lands of Native people in order to, you know, uh, create territories and states. The way it's going to do this is through treaties. Um, And so it goes out and sends treaty commissions to the various nations uh, out in the West. And it uh, says to them, here are the treaty terms. Uh, And... um, we believe we're acting in uh, a, in utmost good faith in providing you uh, with, uh, you know, some assistance to become civilized uh, if you'll give up a good portion of your land. Uh, and what the United States would like is for uh, Native nations to simply agree to that right away. Um, but uh, in fact, many of them don't. Uh, and then the United States says, well, we're going to uh, put pressure on you to agree to these terms. And so they use a variety uh, of what I think are really ultimately quite deceitful um, mechanisms to um, coerce, and I think there is always coercion, uh, the agreement of at least some leaders, um, most of whom probably really don't have the authorization by their people uh, to cede lands. That then leads many uh, Native people uh, to believe that treaties that the United States now declares have been fairly negotiated. Uh, In other words, the treaties have uh, been treaties that have reflected utmost good faith. Uh, But many Native people don't see those treaties as anything like that at all. Uh, They actually see them as fundamentally illegitimate. They understand the techniques that have been used uh, to coerce uh, a kind of ascent by some people. And so, what those people do uh, is that they begin uh, to organize um, multinational. Uh, confederations of resistance, and they say we don't think the treaties are legitimate; we don't think we've given up our land, and if you start sending settlers into here, or if you start sending troops into here uh we'll resist and so it's at that point uh that the United States says, Look on our terms we've we've shown utmost good faith uh and you guys Uh, are rejecting uh, reasonable terms, Uh, you have no basis for your claims, and so now uh, we're going to declare war on you. So that's where just and lawful war on U.S. terms would come in. The United States declares that the war is going to be just and lawful, um, but I don't really think it is. Uh, And then, you know, I go on to say, uh, let us look at the kind of war, uh, that the United States will prosecute um, against Native resistors. And I do believe that it is a distinctive kind of war. Uh, it, it's a war against, quote, uncivilized people or war against, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration about the merciless Indian savages uh, and war against those people the United States believes uh, doesn't have to conform uh, to the kind of international rules that you would apply to war with quote civilized people, and then I think what uh the kind of war uh that they're that they pursue uh against resisting native people is genocidal war uh that is to say war uh that involves um you know a- an attempt anyway to surprise. Uh, and destroy entire villages you know of hundreds or even thousands of people, uh and to kill as many people as possible, perhaps take uh a few people as hostages uh but largely indiscriminate killing, uh which you know, in my view meets a fairly common sense definition of genocide there i don't think the Definitional question becomes particularly challenging um, when you're talking about that kind of warfare.
2: Thank you, Jeff, for for addressing uh, especially that last bit because um, you know some might respond, well, war is war? Genocide is genocide. What made this war genocidal?" And and I do think you uh, very sufficiently um, you know cover that in your book. Um, so the uh, question I have for you uh, in the book you quote Thomas Jefferson uh, a number of times. And, you know, at a time when within the last, I guess, five to 10 years, um, there's been movements for, um, you know, statues and other things um, to come down based on uh, historical racism and, and other things. Through your research, did did do you think that we should, that we need to rethink how we celebrate some of our historic figures as related to their roles in the treatment of indigenous peoples in the United States?
1: Yeah, I do think so. And I think there's um, Mm -hmm. some discussions of that that are going on. You know, they've they've been going on for a long time. Um, You know, uh, indigenous people in California particularly have protested, uh, you know, some of the statues that uh, commemorate uh, the missions um and uh here on my campus uh we have a pioneer statue um, there's some discussions uh about what that uh statue represents and celebrated at the time and you know whether we want to keep that up there uh or uh maybe move it to a museum where we can contextualize it and educate people about what uh its purposes were uh, at the time, so I I do think that there are, and and I think we're going to see more discussions about this. Um, you know the uh discussions about Confederate monuments. Um, I think have stimulated this, but a lot of people are saying, uh, you know, yes, uh, we've got a very serious problem, um, you know, with celebrating uh the Confederacy. Uh, but isn't it an equally serious problem? Uh, to be celebrating American leaders who, for example, um, spoke uh, of the desirability of exterminating indigenous people. Uh, You know, Jefferson talked that way, you know, Um, and uh, uh, it, you know, uh, something that I think we need to think about more.
2: Thank you. And I think these protests are um, a testament to uh, something else, which is, you know, connected to the title of your book, Surviving Genocide, that Um, Native peoples are, you know, protesting against the commemoration of some of these individuals. Um, Why were some Native nations better able to avoid or resist their own destruction than others?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a a very interesting uh, and frankly, a challenging question. Uh, And it's something that I did as I was uh, writing the book. Uh, think about, and I have some things to say. Um, I think there's two factors. Um, one, is, um, one is location. Uh, so um, at certain periods in the history, I think depending on where people were, uh, they were just simply more subject um to uh forces of destruction uh so to give an example uh during the period of removal uh in the 1830s and 1840s um you know the nations that were forced to move were those that were in the path um of um of demand for their land um by either um enslavers uh in the south who wanted to extend the southern cotton plantation um, regime uh or in the north um you know uh in a different version of settler colonialism one that um was centered more on um free labor uh and independent freeholders uh you know but those people want land as well um but there were some areas uh, where those lands weren't in such demand yet. Uh, And so, for example, um, settlers started moving um, north uh, into the lower peninsula of Michigan, uh, you know, fairly early after the War of 1812 and were moving up the lower peninsula. Um, In 1837, there was a financial panic, uh, and that sort of deterred settlers from continuing to go north. And so, when you get up into the upper part of the Lower Peninsula and then the Upper Peninsula, then when you get into some of the areas of Wisconsin, uh, you don't really see huge demands on on those people's lands. Uh, And so, the pressure on them for removal is not as intense. Now, uh, there are treaties that are forced on them that require them to cede some of their lands. Uh, this is to some extent anticipating future settlement it's also uh, because people are starting to want their resources, particularly their timber resources and you know they it's not that they don't suffer uh, during this period, but they aren't forced out of their homelands uh, and so um, location uh, does become um, a variable. Uh, I also think there are cases where uh, some nations um, have uh exceptionally good leadership uh which um allows them to maintain um some internal cohesion uh that uh allows them to survive uh some of the disruptions better. Uh and one example I give in my book that I think fits this um is uh, a rather small community of uh you know a few hundred uh Kickapoos, there's other Kickapoo communities, but there's a particular Kickapoo community in Illinois uh led by a man named Kennecuck, um, who seems to have uh, I don't know if it's exactly him or his people collectively working with him, uh, but they seem to have maintained a community cohesion, and they are forced to Kansas, uh, what eventually becomes Kansas. Um, But it seems that they don't lose uh, uh, a significant portion of their population and that they're able to rebuild uh, an agricultural economy under difficult conditions um, without um, significant loss of life. Lots and lots of the other nations um, have significant loss of life uh, that are moved into Kansas. And, you know, I wouldn't want to, in saying, you know, this – Kickapoo community had, uh, I think, exceptional leadership. That's not to say, oh, all these other nations that suffered much larger losses somehow had bad leaders, and that's what explains it. Um, You know, that would, uh, you know, be blaming the victim or something like that. I mean, you know, people are being subject to such forces of destruction, uh, you know, that it it is a miracle um, that survival
2: occurs at all, um, given what's happening connecting that to the sort of survival or resilience, uh, narrative. Why is it important that we do emphasize, especially non-Native peoples to emphasize the resilience and survival of native individuals, um, you know, avoiding turning them into victims. And, uh, you know, some of these, uh, nations are still facing, um, you know, threats of their existence today. So, uh, could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really important point, uh, Jeff, um, you know um one of the things that uh i mentioned the new indian history starting in the 1980s uh one of the points that has been stressed uh from that point on in the literature is you know we need to create narratives uh that do not depict native people as victims uh or sometimes it's put in terms of you know we don't want declension narratives Um, and, you know, uh, we know that, uh, settler colonialism's goal, uh, you know, we know this particularly from, uh, um, you know, the, uh, Australians, uh, like Patrick Wolfe and Lorenzo Veracini have called this to our attention, you know, that the goal is to eliminate native people by one way or another. And one of the ways of eliminating native people is, ideologically or rhetorically or discursively um, by portraying them totally as victims who have disappeared. Uh, And even in quite sympathetic accounts um, of say the 19th century and the experience of native people under the U S one can get narratives that do produce this sense that, um, you know, native people were destroyed, that they ceased uh, to exist. Um, and of course, this is so important to counter, um, you know, uh, we need to recognize that we have, um, close to 600 federally recognized tribes and many other tribes that aren't federally recognized, but, um, have, you know, uh, tribal integrity have, uh, the attributes of sovereignty, which ought to be recognized. Uh, and, you know, we need to know that, Um, You know, the history I'm writing about was a horrific history for many people, but that people did survive uh, and they continued to face uh, terrible challenges uh, in the 20th century. Uh, But there's been a resiliency uh, and so many Native communities have uh, rebuilt their populations. Uh, You know, there's been a resurgence in Indian country uh it's often dated you know to the late 1960s 1970s uh that has uh many uh aspects and manifestations um one most recently you know is uh is the movement at standing rock of water protectors against uh the Dakota access pipeline so you know we need to recognize a continuity between you know uh survival Uh, as I'm talking about it uh, and many other people in the 19th century, and then, you know, to the future uh, where we have things like uh, what we saw at Standing Rock.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Um, Let me begin to to wind down here. Um, You began to address this a little bit uh, at the start of our conversation, um, you know, using the term uh, genocide to refer to the treatment of of indigenous peoples in the United States. Uh, At the end, when you do give an overview of the the genocide and indigenous peoples in the United States debate. Um, you mentioned that your own perspective evolved. How did that happen or how did that happen?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, in in a way it was an evolution. It was also kind of back and forth. Um, you know, the primary goal of the project was to give an overview of the impact of the United States, uh, as it was expanding on native nations. And that involves understanding what they were doing, you know, to counter adverse impacts. Um, And I often thought of, you know, because uh, as you know, uh, and many listeners will know the debate about, uh, you know, what qualifies as genocide, what the proper definition of genocide is, Uh, in many, many cases, not just in North America, but, you know, in many cases all over, um, you know, is very contentious. And there uh, is a proliferation of definitions uh, and always debate about those. And so, um, you know, I was sometimes thought, well, maybe the best thing to do is not even uh, to address, not even use genocide at all one way or another, but just talk about Um, forces of destruction was the term that I uh, often Uh, use. And, you know, I use that term in the book as well. Um, You know, but in the end, I did think that um, uh, genocide uh, was a part of the history that I was writing about. It was a big part of the history. Um, You know, genocide wasn't happening every day. It wasn't happening to all of the different Native communities that I was writing about all the time um but it was consistently there in various ways um you know as a process uh as a, as a reality and certainly as i've said as something um um to be survived so so in the end you know what i've uh tried to argue and i think you know some native people uh feel that writing their histories in terms of genocide can be a problem because it risks Um, you know, inscribing them um, as victims, as we we were just uh, discussing. Um, So, you know, I didn't want to write a history that was just genocide, genocide, genocide. Um, But I also, and, you know, uh, there, as I say, many parts of the history where genocide isn't occurring, and there's other things that are going on. But I think it's against the background of the threat of genocide, um, you know, which is more or less, uh, ever present. And then certainly does, uh, occur, uh, at various points and through various processes. Um, so for better or worse, you know, um, that was the way that I wound up,
2: uh, doing it. Thank you. And you mentioned that, you know, some of your listeners or some of our listeners, and, and I might know, um, about some of the things that you're referring to, at least on a, a certain level, um, beyond that, who, who is your audience? Who, who do you want to read this book?
1: Well, you know, I'd like uh, I'd like uh, people who are interested in Native American history, interested in U.S. history, uh, both academics, but also, um, you know, people of the reading public uh, uh, to find uh, the book uh, valuable. Um, you know, a couple of other points. Um You know, um, I think uh, Native people, you know, understand um, and, you know, they have instructed me on this point um, that, you know, there is genocide in their history. Uh, And, you know, I think, think of themselves. uh, I don't want to speak for everybody, but many people I do know, it's often said, think of their communities uh, as, as having had to survive uh, a a genocide, a genocidal process. Um, and so, you know, that consciousness of genocide, I think is very much present still among indigenous people. Um, so I don't feel that I have anything to tell them that is completely new. Um, but, you know, I'd like to think that in some of the details, uh, in the analysis of us policy, uh in the information that i presented uh that there will be uh, a value for readers who already kind of know the basic punchline as it were um but that in the details uh the specific information there there'll be some value um you know for non-native readers some of them also will understand some of this history so the same thing would go there but many uh many readers i don't think um have you know fully reckoned with um you know the history that i'm I'm trying to bring to light here um, you know that uh, American democracy uh you know as I argue and as I believe um, when it was set up, theorized uh, when it was put into practice um you know. American democracy fundamentally depended on the taking of the lands of native people. Um, you know, the uh, early founders recognized this. Um, you know, you, you had to have, they said, uh, a continuously expanding supply of land uh, in order to create uh, the conditions for democracy, which in their view rested on, you know, a pretty a uh, large uh, portion of the white population um being independent property holders that was a kind of requisite um for political participation so to get that uh you had to take native lands uh i'm not sure people recognize that um broadly speaking uh and you know i'd like to see that um more broadly recognized and then also to see a broader recognition Um, of the costs of that you know what what were the costs of that for
2: um native people um and also you know thank you for all the time you gave us today um before we do let you go um can you tell our audience about what will be covered in the second volume of this two volume set i don't know if we mentioned at the start but you know you do write that this is one of two volumes um and is this what you're currently working on now
1: uh yeah right um you know originally, uh, when I started in on this uh, many years ago, I thought uh you know writing a book that would cover uh the impact of u s expansion on native nations from the revolution uh really up to say the early twentieth century um you know when sort of continental expansion is complete as it were um and, you know, along the way, I just realized that I couldn't fit this into a single volume. So, you know, I divided it into two. So the one that I finished, as I say, you know, ends out in sort of Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, that area. Uh, and then uh, the next volume will focus mainly on the American West. Uh, you know, I'm currently working. Uh, For example, on the Pacific Northwest, particularly the impact of um, the advent of uh, commercial capitalism on the Northwest coast in the 1780s, uh, 90s and early 19th century when, uh, you know, uh, U.S. shipping interests, uh, commercial interests were uh, coming out to the Northwest coast uh, and making arrangements with uh, native communities who were hunting sea otters And, you know, the sea otter pelts were then sold into China as part of uh, the China trade. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to think about there in terms of violence, in terms of um, new diseases, uh, and eventually in terms of uh, land loss. So, um, you know, the Northwest will be part of it, the Plains, the Southwest, California, and so on.
2: Right. And do you have a, a general idea of when this might be coming to publication? I know this one was just published, so it might be a little bit of a little time down the road.
1: Yeah, I wish I could do it. Uh, you know, uh, I started writing this book. Uh, I put pen to paper, as they say, um, in the fall of 2010. That was a long time ago. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm getting older, so um, I'd better do it sooner than I did the first one um you know but you know gosh it's hard to say
2: isn't it how long these projects take sure is well Jeff you know thanks again for your time I do look forward to volume two when it does make it to publication and uh thank you and maybe we'll have you back when the time comes and uh take care okay thanks very much Jeff